Welcome to the Manufacturing Masters Podcast with your host, Allison DeFord. Hold on to your hats, everybody. We have the queen of world-class maintenance with us today, and her name is Kim Wolf, formerly a plant manager for Campbell Soup and director of manufacturing for McCormick's and a number of other companies. Kim is, she's world-class and you'll, you'll hear a little bit more about that in the episode. I've, uh, I've made the ultimate decision that we are changing her name. So you'll have to catch the episode to find out what that is and make sure that you hang out to the end because there is some juicy goodness that she and I jumped on, um, that was a little unexpected. And I know that you're going to get a lot out of it. Make sure that you follow her on LinkedIn. She's a leadership coach now and manufacturing consultant for all kinds of companies. You would benefit from working with her. She's also an expert on the Manufacturing Masters platform. Everybody join me in a deep dive with Kim Wolf. Here we grow. Well, kids, we have a real treat today. We have with us Kim, and I've decided I've given you a new middle name. You are now forevermore Kim World Class Maintenance Wolf. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have to find my crown somewhere to put on. Exactly. So we'll need to alert Social Security or whatever that is up in Canada and let them know. <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah. No, you and I were just talking before we started this that We've known of each other for quite a while, but we haven't <laughs> met before. I call this meeting nowadays because, you know, Zoom is like real life. Um, so it's a thrill. It's a thrill to finally have you on. Well, thank you so much. I I am a huge fan of Manufacturing Masters and I'm a huge fan of yours. So putting those two things together, I'm golden. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. I, we've, we're going to dive into a really important topic that you are incredibly experienced at and I know people can learn a ton from you and one of the things that you've talked about recently is the fact that you know the last several years have been um, quite interesting to say the least there have been lots of changes transportation I mean things that have affected manufacturing for sure transportation supply chain shortages costs are crazy you have some really amazing insights and lessons learned from these past few years. And I would love it if you want to jump in and let's talk about what you've learned that you can help mm -hmm. our listeners learn as well. Sure. I think, I mean, certainly, I think everybody has learned some major lessons over the last couple of years. And what I have really seen is that the way that the models, the way that we used to do business just doesn't really apply anymore. And I think so many of us kind of got caught um, where it was just, we were very slow on the uptake mm -hmm. in order to um, respond to the changes that were happening within supply chain and within manufacturing. One of those that I thought was very obvious and evident was many companies not having secondary suppliers. And, you know, I think that's something that we talk about and everybody says it sounds good and, you know, they've got it in their action plans to work on sometimes, but it always gets pushed to the bottom of the list because we have faith in our current suppliers. We've had long-term relationships with them. 
And, you know, we just think that that relationship will continue. And it could, it very well could, but it's really a gamble that you're taking that, that, that something's not going to interfere. In this case, you know, we've had some changes with COVID and with availability of supplies, um, transportation of those supplies to our geographic area. Uh, and in some cases, there are things that our suppliers, you know, really are, it's completely out of their control. Maybe a fire in their facility or maybe right. uh, a strike, a union strike. You, you never know what's coming. And that's why it's always been a good idea to to go through that secondary supplier uh, process. But I think it became even more evident over the past couple of years because there were so many things happening all at the same time. So I really encourage manufacturers to really take a look at their prime supplier list, find some secondary suppliers. It takes work to do that. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy thing. You can't just, you know, go through the yellow pages and find somebody and say, okay, now you're my secondary supplier. It takes work to identify, um, you know, who you want to work with. How are you going to get um, supplies from their facility to your facility? The logistics of all of those things. Um, you know, putting together contracts, what are your quality specs, and making sure that those things have been identified very clearly, and then starting to do some trials. And certainly with secondary suppliers, you're going to have a very hard time having anybody sign up to say, oh, yeah, I'll be your number two. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that you are giving them some volume at some regular interval um, in order to keep, you know, their skills up, keep their quality up. Um, and, and continue to give them something in return for them being, you know, a secondary supplier to you. They need to know that can count on some kind of a volume from you. So it's not easy, but um, I have had many clients over the past couple of years in particular that are saying, oh my gosh, you know, what do we do if we don't get this? We're down. We are literally down. And uh Unfortunately, that wasn't that's not the right time to start that secondary supplier process. Right. And you talk a lot about being and this is going along with this being preventative versus reactive or being proactive. That's where that world class maintenance uh, hat comes on. Um, you know, I'm a huge believer of the preventive maintenance. Predictive maintenance is even better than preventive maintenance. And I think that that is true when it comes to suppliers or really any facet of of manufacturing, uh, you know, being reactive and just waiting for the fire to start and then trying to put all your resources on it to, to put it out. Uh, many times you have to do that over and over and over and it's, it just continues to repeat um, in a cycle where you could be spending those resources, you know, doing things like reducing costs and, um, you know, implementing automation or implementing team development or whatever other initiatives you have. Um, if they're not firefighting, they can be doing some of those other things. So, um, yeah, so I'm a big believer of of having that plan. In this case, we're talking about, um, you know, secondary suppliers, but start to move forward on it sooner rather than later. It doesn't mean that, you know, you have to switch suppliers. That's not what we're saying. But to have somebody who's available, ready, pre-approved them, they uh, know what to expect from you and vice versa. Got a contract in place. Um Boy, you'll be able to sleep much better at night, I think, having those things in place. Absolutely. Well, in one of your videos, um, because you are an expert on the Manufacturing Masters platform, one of your videos I love, and I, I, I'm i guessing that this is what's part of what's getting in the way for manufacturers. 
the video is this isn't the way we do things yeah. right yeah. and it's dealing with outdated maintenance practices so do you uh -huh. feel like that's probably the biggest obstacle besides well this is going to take effort and it's hard and we're busy and i don't have time and two it's kind of like this is working so i'm just gonna uh -huh. we're gonna stick with it yeah, why mess with it? Right. And I think that was a lesson that I learned early on in my career. Um, I was a mechanical engineer, plant engineer for, for several years, and then I was promoted into maintenance management. And so when I moved into that role, um, you know, I wanted to approach things a little bit differently. And what I was learning as an engineer um, is when I saw equipment that was just going down unexpectedly and the lines were completely down, waiting for a mechanic or waiting for a part, whatever it might be. So that's when we started to look at world-class maintenance tools. And the pushback I got is, eh, but we've never done it this way before. We've waited by our toolboxes and we've waited until there's a problem. And then we just, you know, all just kind of pounce on that problem and we get it fixed as fast as we can. The intent was good, right. but they didn't know any other way to do it. And so I started to really explore some different tools and, and techniques like preventive and predictive maintenance. Um, using root cause failure analysis, really trying to drive even uh, autonomous maintenance where you're looking at operators taking on some of the basic maintenance tasks, which then frees your maintenance staff up to do more complex tasks. But that was really the pushback that I got was, gosh, the operators, if they, if they do our job, what am I going to do? Right. You know, and I said, oh, gosh, I have a list. We've got lots of stuff that we could be doing. But you don't have time to do these things because you're just you're you're doing the basic things like lubrication of equipment or basic repairs that really could be done um, with some training mm -hmm. by the operator who really frankly knows that equipment better than you do because they operated it every day. So really, we were thinking outside of our boxes, you know, thinking outside of of the traditional model of maintenance, and it became very very successful. Um, we moved some of our uh, of our folks into work uh, work order planning. We moved them into predictive and preventive maintenance programs where we were really digging and really doing a great job with detail um, and with um, input once the maintenance task had been completed, putting that input back into the system, using pictures to show where the problems were, lots of things like that. But it didn't happen overnight because right. I think all of us revert to what we know. That's that as that's human nature for us, mm -hmm. um, and so it, I would say the same if you're using this example with secondary suppliers. You know, we're good; it's not a priority right now. We may or may not get to it. Um, we're 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 fine with what's been happening, and that's exactly the same process that I went through with maintenance. But once you can get on the other side of that and look back, you realize all the opportunities that you missed along the way by coming so entrenched in tradition and doing things the same way that you always have. I think one of the things that you just said that really stuck out for me is that reallocation of duties uh, that when somebody says, oh, but that's going to take away from me. And you say, no, you uh, could actually be doing these things. It's actually such a huge opportunity for both people. Um, or both sides of the, of the aisle, however you want to word it, but yeah, it's actually a huge opportunity. And I think when you present it in that way, uh -huh. and it's that reassurance, right? It's like, no, in fact, your job's going to get more interesting and 
you know, you could be doing these other things instead. Like you said, it's, uh, yeah, it's that, I don't know, our, our lizard brain takes over and we immediately go fight or fight or flight. And when it's presented to you in a, I think a positive way, you're more open and receptive. Yeah. And I think that that's our job as leaders, really. I don't care what your business is, but as leaders, that's our job is, is to find that, that positive outcome. Um, that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And then being able to provide the support to your team to make that transition. And I would say the same thing would go with automation these days. You know, so many companies um, are looking at automation and the employee base is scared to death of it. Oh my mm -hmm. gosh, this is a robot that's going to take over what I have always done. Um, you know, we even see that now with medical practice. There's been a lot of discussion lately about, you know, robots performing surgery. So if that's the case, what's the surgeon going to do? And it doesn't mean that all of those jobs are going away. But what it may do is elevate your skill level into something you find very interesting and that you love to do, but you've never had the opportunity to do it because you've been out there doing things the traditional way. Um, right. So we shouldn't be afraid of automation. They're not taking your job. They're supplementing your job to allow you to do things differently. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm hearing that same thing, that same message, that same truth, um, at least in, in my corner of the manufacturing world, I'm seeing it become more pervasive, which is thrilling because, you know, I, I'm always a fan of dispelling myths and reducing fear and what is this, what is the real opportunity here? You know, it's actually much greater than you, than you can see. Um, one thing that I love that you talk about is technology uh -huh. and being data driven with your maintenance. Do you want to share with our listeners something along those lines of, you know, a, a good takeaway for them or some, something meaty that will be meaningful that they could utilize with data oh, and sure. technology? I I think the, the the nerdy engineer in me loves numbers, loves data. So that's probably where the whole thing started. But I have found in my career that without data, one, we don't know what to work on. And two, we can't ever measure our, our progress against it. Um, right. You have to be able to baseline where you're at today to identify how much are these opportunities worth. And I know so many companies that are trying so hard with employee empowerment and kind of develop teams and that kind of thing. And they get a team together and the team completes what they were supposed to do. And then everybody steps back and says, hmm, you know, what what was the impact? Where was where would I see that? You know, we spent a lot of, you know, employee time, maybe even, you know, money, capital, whatever it might be. What did we get back for that? And if we're not able to show that um, and show the progress, or perhaps we worked on the wrong thing. And we didn't even know it. You know, we thought it was a big issue. Um, we thought it was costing us lots of money or lots of time or whatever it might be. So we worked on something and it really wasn't that big of an impact. So data is really that fundamental foundation tool um, that I think has to happen. And, you know, back in the day when I was first starting as an engineer, we literally had, um, you know, a clipboard and mm -hmm. we were just keeping time with the stopwatch. I mean, that's the way it was. We didn't even have computers. And then we kind of moved into Excel spreadsheets. And now there's so many different um, opportunities that the companies have that are not expensive. It's not a huge um, investment that companies have to make to collect data. But you have to have it. 
Um, and I know that many companies who have um, put in some kind of a data acquisition system, um, gosh, they, they, it has paid for itself over and over and over again. Um, but again, I think it's, it's a tool that you have to have for continuous improvement, for world-class maintenance, for world-class manufacturing, for all of those things. You have to know what to work on and you have to know what it's worth and then be able to monitor your progress against it. Well, and I have a question for you and forgive my ignorance. Um, I have a, a good buddy, Paul Van Meter, who's the founder of uh, ProShop ERP. Is is an ERP system, Is did, would that fulfill this? And again, uh, forgive my ignorance in, um, in asking this question, but is that, uh, would that be a, a solution for say a small to mid-sized manufacturer to utilize something like that? It is. An ERP system is one part of data. So ERP is really looking at, um, you know, having, looking at your resources, your supplies coming in, looking at your finished product inventory, uh, looking at your finished product going out, and then putting a plan together of how to most efficiently produce the product that you produce. So um, an ERP system, that is certainly one aspect of, of data acquisition. Um, another one might be downtime collection. You know, where you're you're keeping track of which pieces of equipment are done. That's you're not necessarily gonna get that in an ERP system, but it's not a very complicated system to get it from as an adjunct um type of a system. But yes, ERP systems absolutely provide um a level of data that manufacturers really need to have to, in order to efficiently plan. Well, <clears throat> I always have too many questions and I'm looking at the time. We already need to wrap up. Oh gosh. I feel um, like we just started two minutes ago. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, one thing, <clears throat> this is this is going to be kind of a side question that I I wasn't planning on asking you, but I'm super curious. I just recently had Megan Zimba on um, and we were talking uh -huh. about women in manufacturing because that's, you know, uh -huh. she does mavens of manufacturing and is a huge advocate. And I know you've been a director of manufacturing for McCormick, right? Huge company, uh -huh. Uh -huh. A plant manager at Campbell Soup. Like you've, and you're an engineer, but obviously I don't think you look like the typical plant manager or, right? Or, or director of manufacturing that maybe I would have thought of as a kid growing up, right? Uh, okay. And so my question is, do you, what what has that been like for you? And was it even an obstacle? Because I'm excited that someone like you is showing the next generation and, you know, that you can, you can do anything, obviously there are, there are no limitations, but that old stereotype, I think, of what somebody in manufacturing leadership looks like uh -huh. isn't what you think it is. It's, <laughs> That's right. I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm exactly going <laughs> with this, but, you know, what what has been your experience and has it been an obstacle or not? You know, I get asked that question a lot, and, and, and I think sometimes people expect me to say, oh, gosh, yes, and I've had these, you know, circumstances, these situations that have just been horrible, and I've had to push through them. I have not had that experience. For me, I have worked for companies um, who it, it just wasn't even an issue. It never was. 
Um, and so it, it was never a distinguishing factor in my mind, even though most of the time I was the only woman, you know, sitting at the table and, you know, the only woman in my graduating, you know, class when I graduated from Penn State in engineering. So I, it, it just hasn't really been an issue for me. But I think because it hasn't been an issue, um, it didn't become one, if, if you know what I'm saying. Right, I, right. You know, were there times that I was tested? I think when I was a, you know, I was a young maintenance manager, I was 20, 24, 25, 26, around there when I became a maintenance manager. Um, first female maintenance manager had a large maintenance staff reporting to me. And of course, I was the first woman that that, that had happened with in the company. And and did they test me? Sure. Yeah. Did it bother me? No, because I knew what I was doing. And so um, I didn't try to overpower them. I didn't come out waving my engineering diploma and say, you know, right. I, I'm qualified. I just demonstrated consistently um, that I knew what I was talking about and I knew what I was doing, but I respected them and what they were bringing to the table too. Did I know it all? Absolutely not. Um, did I always have the best design or the best methods or the, no, absolutely not. Um, but working together, then we could, we can reach that, you know, the best we could come up with these solutions that were the best. Um, so I very quickly, I think, um, you know, was able to prove myself. Um, it could have been because I was young, could have been because I was a woman, could have been because I was an engineer and thought that I had all the answers. None of those things proved out to be, to be a problem. Um, I was never, never found myself working at a company where I felt stifled. I been very fortunate and very blessed to work for companies um, that it, like I said, it just was never an issue. Um, and nobody ever, I think, said, you know, we're promoting you because you're a woman. Okay. And I didn't expect that. I knew I had to do the work. Um, there was one um, role that I had as a vice president of global manufacturing. And I, my, I was opening a new plant, brand new. The plant wasn't even built yet. In the first year, I spent in a construction trailer with a hard hat and work boots every day at work. And that's just, that was part of the job is, but what was so fulfilling and satisfying for me because I was able to, you know, really build this plant and hire the staff and train people. And it was an amazing opportunity to do. So the fact I had to wear a hard hat and work boots, who cares? You know, I, so I was willing to do what it took in the jobs. Um, you know, when I was a maintenance manager, I'd be on my back with, you know, wrenches, you know, on, on my in my hand and underneath a piece of equipment because that's what I needed to be doing. Um, that was part of the job. So I, I always encourage women don't go in thinking that there's going to be a problem because if you do that, you probably are going to invite problems, do the work, show up and be the best that you can be. And you will get promoted. You will have those career opportunities because of that. Um, because you've, you've done the work. So I, I often get invited to, you know, Girl Scout, Girl Guide um, classes or high school classes. And, you know, they want me to talk about women in STEM and things like that. And and that's really the best advice that I can give people is to give women, give, you know, even younger girls is if it's something you're interested in, just put your head down and do the work and be open to learning. Um, you know, make sure you're networking with people who you admire uh, and you have respect for and listen to the advice that they give and you'll be just fine. I love that spoken <laughs> from, uh, Kim world-class maintenance wolf. I'm telling you, you're, you're going to have to change your name now. Um, 
Wow. That might be a little long for my passport. I don't know. <laughs> it might be. Well, we'll just abbreviate WCM. Okay. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I wish we didn't have to go, but we do. I'm definitely going to have you back on numerous times because there's so much wisdom and experience that you can share with manufacturers. Um, and, and just because I think the fact that you've worked with larger manufacturers too, is such a great, like most of the people that are in our audience are small to midsize manufacturers. Uh And I think that you bring a, just a depth, um, of expertise and experience to help them realize that, you know, you don't have to be massive. It doesn't have to cost a fortune and you don't have to be afraid of it. You can adopt these systems and procedures that will benefit um, your organization, no matter what size you are. Exactly. And I, I do think that that's important. Some companies, the, the you know, the SMEs will say, gosh, you don't understand because you've always worked for these big companies. I have worked for a few small privately owned companies as well. So I understand the difference between the two and the resources that are available. Sometimes those big companies um, think that they've got all those resources internally. So they're not really looking as hard as they could for new ways of doing things, et cetera. I, I think a lot of times they're bringing those ideas in on who they hire, but the small to medium-sized companies have those resources available, like through manufacturing masters. You know, right. those resources are there to help those smaller companies who don't necessarily have a training department or don't necessarily have, um, you know, a, a world-class maintenance team. Um, it's okay because there's we can use the, take those tools and adapt them, like you said, and they can be very very effective. So they should not be discouraged. Small to medium sized companies should not be discouraged at all. Um, there all of those tools, root class failure failure analysis and world class maintenance and secondary suppliers and all those things that we talk about um, are all available to them. All they need to do is just tap into the resources. Absolutely. Well, for everybody listening, run, don't walk. Make sure that you catch all of Kim's videos on manufacturingmasters.com. Every one of them is a gem and you will learn so much. So Kim, I cannot wait to have you back. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing in the industry. And uh, I just really appreciate you. I am so glad to have been invited. Thank you, Allison. I look forward to more conversations. All right. Until next time. Take care. If you're not already... Subscribe to the Manufacturing Masters podcast on Apple Music or Spotify. And for a deeper dive, head on over to manufacturing-masters.com. It's everything they never taught you in school.